The Persistent and Nasty podcast is a series of interviews and informal discussions with inspiring women and other marginalised voices in theatre, film and beyond. From actors to activists, we aim to amplify these voices and invite the world to stay nasty. If you enjoy the Persistent and Nasty podcast and support the work that we do, please like, download, subscribe and review each episode. It really does help us get our message out and our incredible guests heard to as many people as possible. Hello, you gorgeous lot, and welcome to another episode of the Persistent and Nasty podcast. Elaine here. How are you all doing? Genuinely, how are you all doing? What a week it has been. I am... Yeah, trigger warning, I am going to talk about the um, US Supreme Court decision of last Friday, um, briefly, because Louise and I feel really strongly about having a conversation um, together that we can share with all of you on this. So it's just my and our um, stance, well, it's not even a stance, like... It's just, it's just where we're at, I think. Um, for me, I can't quite find the words at the moment and I can't quite get my sadness and my anger under control. And I don't think I should have to and neither should anyone. Um, this decision by supposedly one of the leading countries and I say that with quotation marks in the western world to regulate people who can have who can give birth uh, I find it mind-boggling because don't sit and think for a second that this just affects America the ramifications for this will be felt worldwide because this gives everyone who is uh, right wing leaning the chance to push forward their convictions and that is dangerous territory and we will begin to see it what I do want to say is I am really proud of the Scottish Parliament for having the conversation during this week about uh, implementing a 150 metre buffer zone round clinics in Edinburgh and Glasgow what I also want to say to many people who are talking about this in the UK is that in Northern Ireland, yes, it has been decriminalised, but access is still limited and people who need are still having to travel. So let's be very clear that our country, and I say country as in the United Kingdom, so all four countries um, in the United Kingdom need to remember what's happening here and let's be very clear on that um there are people in northern ireland who can't access basically healthcare because that's what it is it is basic healthcare it is life-saving healthcare um and it is a bigger conversation will be on the fact that who this will impact the most 
And I think most of us will know who it will impact the most. Because if you have money, you can get the things that you need. If you don't have access to that money, then you can't get access to the health care that you need. And I think I'm probably going to have to stop there with what I'm saying because um, I do really want to have this conversation with Louise and all of you. Um, but I guess what I want to say to everyone who this is going to affect is know that you have our support, how little that may be, but we are with you. Um, there are links in the episode notes um, to uh, places that you can donate to help those people who will need this healthcare. I hope that you are all looking after yourselves. I hope that you are doing what you need to do. I hope that you are doing as much self-care. I hope you are letting the tears flow. I hope you are screaming out your anger um, because we are all feeling it all. Be kind to yourself and each other. Take a breath. Just make sure you look after yourselves. Okay, <laughs> well, today's episode is with the truly brilliant... Uh, awe-inspiring, fabulous Yasmin Abdul-Majid. This is the second time that we've had Yasmin on the podcast and I am so excited to have her back and to get to chat to her again. Um, we cover so many things in today's episode, but the thing that we are talking about and why she is with us again is Yasmin has a new book out called Talking About a Revolution. Um, it is available in the UK from the start of August and is currently available in the in Australia right now. Um, you can also get it uh, on Kindle uh, everywhere, I believe. Um, all links are in the show notes. Yeah, as I say, we talk about so many different things. We talk about cancel culture. We talk about the lack of community. We talk about the systematic destruction of our unions and our societies and how we are all still suffering the decisions made um by governments in the certainly in this country and um the US as well more most likely um of the governments in the 80s we talk many things um but it is also fun and joy-filled and Yasmin really is just inspiring in so many ways and I know that you will all thoroughly enjoy today's episode. You can follow us on all social media, Twitter at Persistent Nasty, Instagram at Persistent and Nasty, Facebook Persistent and Nasty. Get in touch, send us an email to persistentandnasty at gmail.com. We love to hear your testimonials. We love to hear what you think of the podcast. So please feel free to share um, download, like, review the podcast, send us an email about it and um, if you're cool with it we will share it on our social media because you know. You can also follow Louise and I on social media. Louise is at Ms Louise Oliver on both Twitter and Instagram and I am at Elaine Stirrett on Twitter and at Elaine.Stirrett on Instagram. 
for today's episode. Oh, have whatever you need to have, um, whether that be hot chocolate or a really beautiful fruity summer drink or wine or beer or a spirit of some kind, you know, go for it. A coffee, latte, mocha. There are so many choices. But as always, you can just have a good old cup of tea. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Yeah, no, I think people are burnt out though. I think, um, as I know, like in our industry, there's been a lot of people who have, I think, left as well because of how precarious our industry is as well. And just like Mm. it being kind of forced into their face of actually you can't just get by. Yeah, and and I think I haven't been able to quite figure out. So, like, I've been working on, so last year with the Soho Theatre Writers Lab, I wrote a play, and then this year I'm writing another one with um, this Tamasha Playwrights Collective, which is, like, which is great. And so, like, on one hand, it feels like there are lots of, you know, people coming in, there are lots of, you know, production companies and theatre companies who are, looking to do things you know in a different way and this that and the other and at the same time as I said I just think that like I don't know where our reserves like our, I feel like our reserves are all empty and I'm not quite sure like how we're filling them up necessarily mm. um yeah it's just it's just been like on a personal level as well like even you know as you know I've had COVID for the last couple of weeks and I think people had people generally were understanding for about a week and then after about a week people were like okay so you know here's the schedule again and it's like oh you know I am busy every day of the week and it's back to folks do you think we could maybe like slow it down a little and I just I just yeah I don't I'm not really making much sense but I just think that like I don't well, you told maybe we, we do <laughs> we don't even maybe know how to do any do it any other way I don't yeah know. I think it's so I think it's our attitudes and I don't know if it's just in the UK maybe it's worldwide mm. right but I do think there is such a if we're going to take it back a Presbyterian work ethic that you get up mm. and get on with mm. it so you know throughout the I years can believe like, that yeah, yeah, I think like, you know, like even with colds, when you think about how ill you feel with a cold and I know mm. like we all joke about man flu and all of that when men have colds and everything, we all feel like crap when we've got cold, but we do just kind of get up and get on with it when mm. actually maybe if we did just take a couple of days, we'd get better quicker. Yeah. And I think <laughs> maybe if we listened to our bodies and rested, you know? Yeah. And I think with COVID now, because we're at that point where mm. <clears throat> thankfully um the numbers of hospitalizations are still mm. really low. Um, but there's an, a huge increase in the amount of people having it again. Mm. Um I mean, I don't know what it I think last week when I saw it, it was like one in seventy-five in England and one in forty in Scotland. Really? Yeah. Oh my god, that's super high. Mm-hmm. I didn't clock it I guess because we don't talk about it on a day-to-day basis in the same way anymore yeah like it's not the front headline or whatever yeah I didn't realize there were so many wow yeah and I think there's something about 
just as you've just said, you know, people kind of going after that first week. Okay, cool, right, let's go. But actually, there's still so many people I know, um, neighbours of mine actually had said, like, they both had it and they've said they've felt awful with it and they're mm. both really fit and healthy. And, you know, their words were, there was poor people at the very beginning. And that's all, like, mm. I thought about Because, like, for me, it was day three, four and five. I felt like I'd been hit by a bus. Mm. And I was like, oh, God. And just kind of thought. <laughs> and I'm three vaccines in. And I do wonder with, as well with the vaccines that people are like, okay, well, you should just be able to get up and get yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, it is, it's really fascinating. Even, I mean, I think for the first week, I was probably sleeping like 18, 20 hours a day. I was just out like a light. Um but it is interesting as well. I think what I kind of struggle with a bit is also my own expectations of myself because obviously I got COVID after the first week of, you know, book tour for me, like right in the middle of doing all this press. And so I'm like, okay, quickly, quickly now, let's, let's try to, you know, let's, surely doing Zooms and not that difficult or exhausting or surely getting on the emails isn't going to be that challenging or like, Surely because I'm only sleeping 12 hours and not 20, like I'm much better now. <laughs> and I think, you know, it's almost like even with, you know, trying to cancel a few things that are coming up that I just know are going to be really exhausting. I really felt like I needed to seek permission from like somebody or something before I was allowed to, you know, quote unquote, allowed to um, prioritize my health, which I think is just like a really funny thing. Like, I was literally telling, you know, strangers and acquaintances and hoping they would say, oh, yes, yes, that sounds sensible. You know, like, (laughs) like, just make the decision yourself and stick with it, you know? Yeah, but it is that thing about, you said it, about being allowed, right? So it's Mm. that thing that's in us of somebody else says, oh, yeah, you should do it, rather than us trusting our own self and our own body to go actually Mm. know yeah and everybody else needs to just get prioritize yeah Yeah. and everybody else just needs to get on board with that and just be like okay like you know we you know like I said earlier to you just before I press record like we made all these promises to each other Mm. when the beginning of COVID about how things were going to be different how we're going to treat each other how we're going to slow our our lower our expectations from people and slow Mm. things down and we're just back to the start and nobody's paying any attention so I think good for you yeah I do wonder. Thank you. Thanks. That's all. I was just looking for validation, Elaine. <laughs> <laughs> You've got it from me. You got it from like, me. Yes. <laughs> I, d- I do wonder what, what the kind of like longer term impact is going to be because like, I just, I don't feel like all this energy is going nowhere, but I can't quite figure out how it's going to pan out, you know, like, uh, I guess like we can talk about the great resignation, but it's also, you know, lots of people quitting jobs and also a super high cost of living. And also, you know, there's all of these other pressures as well. So it's, it just is a strange, like the 2020s are going to be a strange decade. Like already I'm like, what is this decade? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Like you're right. so right. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm going to look like... back and be like, that decade was whack. Like, <laughs> We started it. Well, like, actually, it's like when you think back, like, to the start of 2020, there was the horrific fires in Australia. Yeah, 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 exactly. 
And then, you know... And people haven't gotten over that trauma, right? Like, you know, when I talk to my friends in Australia, they're like, yeah, the fires that were really bad. And then we went into a pandemic and now it's like super high inflation. So like, we haven't actually... And this is the thing, like, I, we haven't had a break. Like, I feel like, I feel like generally across the board, when I talk to my friends and I talk to folks in the various kind of spaces I'm in, I don't feel like anybody's kind of had time to catch their breath and to rest, like to recuperate or whatever. And, and because we don't have like any broad um, you know, ritual for healing or ritual for like, for even, to be honest, the, the thing that I've seen people have like the most excitement about has been honestly the union strike, like the rail, the RMT union strike this week in the UK. Oh, and the it's workers. like, right. And it's like, I was like, oh, this is maybe the first, you know, um, sign of like positive collective action targeting a very specific, you know, obviously we've had, you know, the Black Lives Matter sort of resurgence post George Floyd and so on. But I do feel like, I, I feel like the energy wasn't maybe as targeted as, you know, a trade union looking at industrial action in a way that seems engaging in the political um, yeah. I guess, in the political process in a more maybe traditional manner. So it's just, it's, I'm like, oh, are we seeing, is this like a summer of discontent? Like, are we going to see, you know, more industrial action? Are we going to see, like, is this the beginning of something different? And I certainly hope so. I mean, so do I. Um, but it's really interesting. Thing. I was talking to my uh, sister-in-law, the other day about this and she made a really good point about um you know in the 80s and Thatcherite Britain um when the decision by that government to allow people to buy their council house mm-hmm. um and actually how that then probably has an effect on people striking in her, like in a grand scheme because all of a sudden mm-hmm. you have mm-hmm. a mortgage and you know you don't have tenant rights in the way that mm. you if you're renting and just that kind of slow push and then her like eradication really of the power that the the mm. unions had um and I was like oh you're I mean my sister-in-law's so smart I was like <laughs> it probably was her grand fucking plan all along no, but I mean we are still and I maintain this and I talk about it quite often I think we are still living in the world of Thatcher and Reagan like the world that you know it's the project the Thatcherite project was one that like destroyed collectivism in a way that we haven't yet been able honestly I think to recoup like even for like yes like right to buy and yes destroying the unions really and like really taking the power away from because like right now what every time a conservative mp speaks about the union move um the industrial election at the moment they're talking about the minor strike you know and this and you're just like the minor strike was like literally four or five decades ago like long time ago and we're not living in the same world but because people have such a you know visceral connection to the era mm-hmm. of the, the minor strike they feel it's really powerful but on top of all of that i think the thing that Thatcher and Reagan are responsible for that we're still living in is this kind of the the deep culture of individualism the deep culture of there is no such thing as community there is no such thing as society you're all like 
there was this fantastic, I referenced this quote in um, one of the essays that I wrote in talking about a revolution. This Your book's um, the reason that we're here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're like, you're, and I yeah, probably yeah, yeah. like... <laughs> Yes, we're back on the podcast. Yeah, I'll su- subtly, <laughs> subtly brought that in. I'll Love finish it. this point and then and then we'll formally introduce it. But um, there's this uh, activist named Gail Lewis who essentially says that like what we have done is we have the the success of the Satirite project is that we have all absorbed this like really neoliberal approach to everything, including our organizing, including our activism. Like she makes the point that the idea that we would celebrate individual activists for being good activists is such a neoliberal individualizing thing because she was like, back in my day, we would, why would we celebrate an individual person if we haven't gotten all the kids fed? You know, like that, that's not the point. The point is not for you to be celebrated individually. The point is for the work to be done. And I just thought that was so powerful, like reminding us of or, or pointing out how much we even who, you know, are interested in a progressive society, are interested in like justice for all and so on, how we have kind of absorbed this underlying logic of, you know, the individual above all and how hard it's actually to push back against that, you know, and that's, I think, what, you know, trying to to dismantle the the legacy of Thatcher and Reagan is trying to to undo this, but it's very difficult. It's so difficult. And I think because it's allowed that part of human beings, which has always been there, um, mm-hmm. to be encouraged and allowed to grow more. Mm-hmm. That kind of mm-hmm. selfish. And incentivized. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, we saw a lot during 2020 and certainly 2021 mm. when people are like well I'm not wearing a mask and right know, really really like yeah <laughs> <laughs> honestly yeah. yeah 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 and it's it's really tragic in a way as well because like I'm sorry humans are not better off fully individualized like we actually need each other oh, you're more miserable you know yeah I wonder about it like I wonder if if people, if they think, I mean, there's a couple of different things, you know, there's the fact that literally our, the way that our, you know, cities are set up and the way that our jobs are set up and the way that our buildings are set up and the way that even the design of social media is set up to like prioritize the individual, right. And to kind of make you the ambassador for the brand of, you know, I am the ambassador for Brandy Yasmin Abdel Majid, even though like I am not a product, but you know, we are all kind of encouraged to, to see ourselves as like a product that must be marketed and optimized and you know presented out into the world in a particular way. Um, and you know, if you're living in a big city or um you have a particular kind of job, it just you don't have maybe the time and the physical space to even easily bring people together in the way that maybe it was possible in a different era that being said part of me also wonders if like people have forgotten what it is to belong or like that skill and the muscle of belonging to community I think it's it is actually a skill and a muscle like if you've grown up in an intergenerational household you know what it is to spend time with the grandma and look after the baby and you know play with the kids and that's just all part of like the role of being in the house, right? And that's just part and parcel of life. But if you've grown up in a very specific type of nuclear family, um, 
and, you know, not really had to be exposed to things that maybe you didn't feel like you wanted to spend your time doing or whatever, well, then it, it gives you different priorities and you actually also lose the ability to, like, spend time with people who, you know, maybe aren't exactly the same as you or, you know, conflict manage between generations or between opinions. Like, I often think that having grown, spent a lot of time around dinner tables where, like, my uncle might actually be very right wing and my auntie might actually have a complete, you know, she actually might be a little bit anti-vax and this, that, and the other. And you have to just be like, Get, let's all just sit down and have a meal and not, you know, and that that kind of teaches you, I think, how to exist in community. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it really does. Um, and it's that, that kind of mix in. Of, you see intergenerational and it's definitely something that we have lost I think mm. in this country for sure. Mm. Anyway, let's talk about your book. Your new book, <laughs> talking about a revolution. Wax, waxing lyrical. Yes, talking about a revolution. Thank you so much for having me back on the podcast, by the way. It's so, so, so nice. You're so welcome, Yasmin. We're so happy to have you back on. We're such incredible fans of you and your work. Thank you. So should I tell you about the collection? Yes, please do. Because I was like... Oh, so, I was like, yes, yes, it means got a new book out. I'm going to order it. And then I was like, I can't get it in the UK. God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It should come out in the UK. So it'll be available like first week of August. Yes. Um, Fabulous. I'll be ordering so, it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so for all the listeners. So talking about revolution, or I think you can get it on Kindle earlier. So now, hopefully. See, this is, um, so this is I have to say, I still love a book though. Yeah, listen, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm def- I'm the person that would wait for the hard copy. So don't yeah, worry just, at all. No judgment. I'm like, I'm, <laughs> Plus, it looks great, right? It so. looks great. I love, love, love it. Love it. So for those who haven't seen the cover yet, it's like a big black cover with, you know, brightly colored text. Talking is in yellow. About uh, is in the sort of fuchsia and revolution is in red. Um, but it's kind of like, it, it's a sort of, you know, throwback to the 80s, you know, Angela Davis, Audrey Lord type era looking book. So, so I was very excited when they presented me with this as an example, or as the as the proof of what the book looks like. So, so for those um, talking about a revolution is a collection of essays that kind of does two main things. One is it collects my work essentially over almost a decade, over my 20s. And I've kind of described the collection as like a coda to my 20s because, you know, it's got the first piece that I ever properly published, which came out when I was like 21, turning 22. And, you know, the last pieces were written um, when I was living in Paris last year at the age of 30. So almost a decade there. And I wanted to bring all these pieces together to kind of show my own personal kind of evolution and transformation and change because you know my first piece I'm I'm literally living on an oil rig and talking about what life is like when I'm working on this oil rig um as a you know as a 21 year old recently graduated mechanical engineer um and then you kind of you follow me as I as I as my politics changes and evolves and as I go through some really transformative experiences, um, sort of privately and publicly, and then as I sort of come out of the other end of that and really think about, you know, 
start looking outwards and think about a bit more critically about the kind of world that I want to build. So number one is that really sort of that personal evolution. And, and, and also I think, you know, I've had some people sort of question why I've wanted to put all these pieces together. And I think for me, it's, there's something quite humbling really about putting all of your work from when you were a really young person, you know, over time to kind of, to actually show that you are allowed to grow and change, Mm. um, to show that like you do learn things along the way, because like, for example, you know, there are some pieces where, where I like, you know, I'm like, this is how I think the world works. And then a few pieces later, I'm like, well, you know, past Yasmin had no idea what was going on. Uh, <laughs> bless her. Uh, so you really, you see that. And so it's almost like a live version of, of, of my growth. And then the sort of the second aim of it for me was very much about genuinely this idea of talking about revolution. So you know, I think we are living, as we were talking about, we're living through this incredible moment of transition. You know, the 2020s are going to be a time. They are already a time, right? And that means everything really, I think, is up for grabs. But we are not necessarily sure how the chips are going to fall. And I think, you know, I'm a big fan of, like, action. But I also think it's vital that we, like, make sure that we have some real discourse and debate beforehand to make sure we're all on the same page and so you know I want us to talk about the revolution that we want I want us to really engage in ideas I you know I talk about there are essays in there about you know the use of language and how that interacts with identity there are essays about how we bring the idea of you know prison abolition to our day-to-day there are essays on one it's called in defense of hobbies where I try to you know, defend my passion that I don't want to turn into a side hustle and, and resist, you know, the, the push for everything in my life to be monetized. You know, there are essays challenging the idea of citizenship. And I guess, you know, ultimately, um, and, and these are m- most of the newer essays that I wrote last year are about getting us to really engage in complex ideas, but hopefully in a really accessible way. And that is really important to me. I think like this is a book that could have been quite academic, but I'm much more interested in, in getting as many people as possible to think about these ideas and, um, and, to, and to ask themselves what they really think and ask themselves what kind of world they actually want to build. And hopefully, you know, people can pick up an essay and then have a conversation about it with their friends or family or whatever. And, and that can help us figure out how we build the better world that we all want to live in. Yes. <laughs> yeah. How was that pitch, Elaine? How was, that was the pitch? I mean, yeah, sold. <laughs> Give me it now. There's so many things in that that you've just said, though, and I think, like, the one thing that really jumped out at me was what you said about, you know, we change and as we change and we learn things. Mm. And it's something that I think that, in a way is getting lost because of social media because people mm. make mistakes right like you know we've we've all done it I am I'm super lucky I grew up when there was no phones with cameras and mm. videos and all of that and I probably said the most ridiculous things when I was younger that I probably my views have changed um yeah they probably have changed on certain things for sure like like probably like yourself your core beliefs are still there because they're right 
right? Right. Your values, like you have, you have the same values for sure. And I think actually, that's a really good point. I don't think I've become a different person, but I think maybe I have kind of understood how to live my values better. Maybe. Lovely. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I'm sure I should write that down. (laughs) It's okay. It's recorded. (laughs) It's recorded. It's totally fine. Brilliant. (laughs) Send you. You'll be fine. Um, But I think there's something really important about you know how we learn and how we grow because you know mm. your core values and the th- and all of that is is with you from a young age but when you're younger you can be influenced by other things around about you I mean never mind when you're younger when you're older too like you know mm-hmm. it's it's um you can be influenced by other things and other people and you can not lose your way but you can waver I think mm. and I think we can make mistakes and there isn't a lot of forgiveness for mistakes. I think that's mm. what I'm trying to kind of get with. And I think social media mm. is really bad for that because something that you said 10 years ago is held up at you at this point. And you're like, yeah, but I was 18 or I was mm. 22 or I was 25 and I just split up with my partner and mm. I was an absolute mess. And I had been drinking and doing whatever you'd done. And you went on Twitter one night and said something mm. really stupid. Yeah, it really is. It's so dangerous to have everything we ever say um, recorded for posterity. Um, I actually have a uh, like a, a thing set up on my Twitter that deletes anything that's older than three months automatically. Um, so I highly recommend that for everyone. <laughs> I'm doing that like now. <laughs> yeah, because it's a really because I remember like when I first kind of hit the hit the papers I remember being like I don't know if I've said anything inappropriate but I probably have let me just you know let me just kind of let me just blanket look after myself here but I do think there is you know there's a couple of different things in what you're saying Elaine one is this kind of like culture of you know this honestly what I would describe as a really carceral culture in which we we believe that punishment is a justice and b the only way to to like hold anyone accountable quote unquote and c has no limits right like we think that um if somebody does something that we think gives us the right to punish them then we feel like any amount of punishment no matter how disproportionate it might be we feel is you know we have the kind of collective right to you know, bestow. And I think that there's there's so much in there that, that needs challenging. I actually also saw something recently, which made me really think that like, there's also a massive difference between say the holding people accountable. So holding sort of, you know, people in positions of power and people who I would argue are kind of on the wrong side of history, holding them accountable versus holding each other within the movement accountable within whatever movement we're talking about. And the challenge is at the moment is we use the same words to describe these phenomenons. We call cancel culture for, you know, a right-wing person who's really homophobic. Mm -hmm. And we also use cancel culture to describe somebody, you know, within say the queer community or the LGBT community, you know, for, for using, say, like for misgendering somebody or for saying something racist, we, and we're trying to call them in. We use the same kind of phrase for both of those phenomenons. And I actually think that's 
you know, if we're doing something within a movement, we have to make sure that we are not essentially using the same framework as those who don't even want the movement to exist, for mm. example. Right. So how do we move away from the framing provided to us by others and by others who aren't interested or don't have the same values towards something that I think is more just and is, you know, transformative in, in, a, in a more positive way. I mean, one of the things I talk about in the essay called On Abolition, so the, um, the book is split into sort of the personal and the, it's called the private and public, and then, it, and then systems and society. So I kind of, I, I have two parts. And in the second part, there's this piece called On Abolition. And it's kind of about this idea of how do I bring abolitionist ideals into my day-to-day life? And one of the things they talk about is like, how do I make sure that I'm not participating in a really carceral approach to holding people accountable and like in a really punishing approach? If I see somebody who makes a mistake publicly, who I know, am I going to jump on Twitter and, and join the fray or am I going to try to pick up the phone and call them and, and have a conversation with them around the table? Like how is my individual behavior reflective of the values that I actually want to see more broadly in the movement? And I think we can all individually do we can all individually act slightly differently, make different decisions, and then hopefully, like that is how a culture over time changes. Yeah, yeah, and I think the thing about doing doing some calling someone out on Twitter, there's obviously things like where yes, absolutely call that person out on Twitter. But as you've just said, if it's someone that you know and they have said something or made a mistake you can do one of two things as you've said. And I think by jumping on that on Twitter, for me, all that does is it's showboating. Oh, it's, totally, totally. It's not, it's not coming from a genuine place, mm. like you said. Like it's like- You're signaling oh, to everyone, I'm on the right side of history here. Yeah. I am on the right like, team. Yeah, 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 yeah. 100%. Rather than just, as you've said, go, okay, well, what I know of this person is true. And therefore, so I will then make, so here's, so let's have the conversation. And if at the end of that conversation, you still haven't found it a way past that, then you make that decision to not maybe have that person in your life anymore. Yeah. And, and this is a really interesting thing, isn't it? I I've been reflecting on it recently about like how much space do we have for people in our lives um, who have different opinions, different values. I often, one of the things I often ask people is like, when is the last time you've changed your mind on something? Because I think we are all interested in changing other people's minds, but rarely do we think about when the last time we've changed our mind was, right? And if we're always interested in going out there and changing other people's minds, it's no wonder, right? We're not moving any, you know, nothing's shifting. It's because everyone's like rooted to their position and just evangelizing outwards. And so, yeah, I I often think when I've changed my mind, it's been a slow and gradual process over long periods where somebody has been patient enough to have the same conversation with me 15 times. And then I'm like, oh, maybe I do get it. Or or maybe I just one day realized that I wasn't as, you know, I wasn't committed to the idea that I was committed to before. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I shifted on that in a way that I didn't realize. I didn't even notice. And so I think, um, I don't know. I, I think that like part of the challenge of having this public facing aspect 
to our relationships and to our every thought is that we are kind of simultaneously thinking about the personal and the public at you know at the same time and that's actually not necessarily super useful um because because you the incentives are different for you know a personal relationship versus a public one um and 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 that's the real challenge it's like it's something that i i'm faced with on a regular basis especially because you know i I have a public profile and um, certainly like one that people are, people are very, you know, if they, if, if they see something that they think um, or if they see me associating, for example, online with somebody who they think has the quote unquote wrong values or, you know, people are just very aware and awake to these sorts of things and, and very kind of like, quick I remember there was this period where somebody would regularly message me and be like on Twitter they'd be like oh you're following this person did you know this person is like an anti-Semite like why are you following them or like you know and it's this kind of policing that I just thought was very strange it's like firstly following someone on Twitter does not mean in any way that I co-sign every single thing you know that person says or does but also why are you spending your energy policing my behavior like is that actually the best way to achieve the change that we want like what are our incentives here why are we spending what are our goals why are we spending all this time trying to ensure like this strange untethered moral purity because I think you know, that is so far away from like the material reform we're actually interested in. How are we getting people better lives? That is what I'm more interested in. And maybe that's like the political pragmatist in me, but I'm like, why are we doing this work? We're doing this work so people live lives of dignity. Yeah. But also, as you've just said, it's about, you know, when was the last time you changed your mind right so if some if you happen to be following someone who said something at some point you know what it's like in twitter somebody follows you you might follow them back they right. might be reading your stuff right so, exactly yeah yeah, you know, yeah, yeah like yeah. them are maybe being educated and learning in a different way and finding out more information than they maybe had before so that person that is as you say policing what you're doing is actually possibly missing out in a way that we have a bigger conversation about all of these different things and how because you're not going to get someone to change their mind by shouting at them Mm-hmm. I mean, because I've certainly never changed my mind that way, right? Yeah, because all that happens is everybody gets defensive and no conversation can be had. Exactly. And um, there's that there's that phrase, it's like, if you're talking, you're not fighting. And I, I've always like, it's kind of, it's, I think it, I can't remember who said it, but it's in the context of like warfare, right? And like bringing people to a table. Um, and I often think that like, I reflect on the fact that most major wars have ended by treaty, you know, no matter how bad the war becomes, at some point you have to get people to the table and to talk to each other. And quite, you know, in 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 traditional warfare, that's been after millions of people have lost their lives. But yeah. like, but ultimately, you have to get people to the table. Ultimately, they have to talk to each other. It's it's um, patriarchal that phrase it feels, mm. and because I'm like so aware all the time of not what's the word I'm looking for here of not constantly going attacking on men 
because mm. it's not always their fault. <laughs> <laughs> you know, toxic masculinity is is there and it's there and it's and it's been there. And that is that kind of thing about if you're not talking, if you're talking, you're not fighting is definitely feels really patriarchal in that sense of, mm-hmm. well, it's the bravado and it's the fight and look how strong we are and look how great we are, rather than actually let's have a conversation and see what we can find. And I do think that women tend to be more towards the talking aspect than the fighting. Mm. Doesn't mean that so. they're all right. Yeah. Or like- but I, actually, what well, I think you, you your point is very valid, though, because we live in a patriarchal culture we can take on those like um, behaviors, regardless of gender. Do you know what I mean? Like we can we can take oh, on those yeah. really patriarchal behaviors, and 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 that's like rewarded in the society because it is that is the sort of the language of power in the society that we're in. Um, and so you definitely see folks of any gender sort of demonstrating or or playing that particular game and I guess what we're talking about is like what are different what are different ways we could do this like how do we and that's kind of why you know I'm like let's talk about a revolution yeah. like as as somebody who you know I'm from Sudan like Sudan has been through many revolutions and uh, lots of lives have been lost and I remember when before the re- there was a most recent revolution it was in 2019 and I remember talking to my dad about it and he was like well you know any regime change means blood and I was like that's such an awful thing to think but ultimately in the traditional sense it's true and so and and also like ostensibly the revolution in 2019 was won because the dictator was deposed but if you look at the situation today it is terrible it is almost as bad as it was in 2019 I mean the living standards are worse than 2019 and so you know in one of my um writing colleagues said to me once he was like the question is how do we survive victory and I always think that's such an interesting question how do we survive victory after you win the revolution how do you survive that and and I guess that's my interest in in the discourse first maybe is like how do we how do we know what we're working towards so that we can survive that victory yeah wow <laughs> like I've had my coffee now Elaine I'm ready to go <laughs> I actually um I want to ask a question like rereading mm. some of your essays and things like that what did anything jump out to you that you're like oh wow that is a real shift in me has occurred in these kind of almost 10 years. I mean, I definitely was a lot more idealistic, right? <laughs> 21 year old me just had a lot more hope in the world, you know? <laughs> you just, you're just so like, I mean, I guess yeah, there's the sort of the the youthful energy of your early 20s can't be beat right like I think that's definitely something but what else I think that like I just had a lot more space for forgiveness of behavior that like really was not okay and I don't know whether I would change that or not like I don't know if that's something that I would go back to you know the 21 year old version of myself and be like you must be more you know staunch or whatever but like you know my first essay I'm kind of talking about the the kinds of things that you know I 
and I actually, I talk about this in a later essay, I really rationalized certain types of behaviors. I really, you know, made excuses for, um, or allowances for behavior that I would now say is like quite discriminatory, but I didn't have any other framework through which to understand what was going on because I had to cope and, and I couldn't, I don't think I could possibly entertain thinking about things any other way. Um, and so I really sort of accepted a lot less than I would now say that I deserve, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. I also, hmm, I think I probably also like, I was, I think maybe like, I was just a bit more unguarded in how I saw the world, if that makes sense, yeah. like for better and for worse, you know, I would sort of um, feel very comfortable, like describing somebody's sort of visual appearance, you know, and being like, oh, they had, they were wearing this shirt and had these tattoos. They, therefore they were probably like this. And it's what you mean. Like, you can't really say that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, you're making some judgments there that like are, are maybe inappropriate, but like, you know, I felt very comfortable um, doing that and, and, and I guess doing to others what had been done to me because, you know, we were both kind of often judging each other based of, um, based of the, the way that we presented. And I think, um, and also I was just as quick to like, um, be quite forgiving of that person and be like, I was completely wrong. And, you know, actually they're great. And so it was, there, there wasn't much nuance there. Right. Like, I think, um, I think I was just kind of, I don't know if I would say simplistic, but I just, I think maybe just had like a, a less complex understanding of things like a, a more kind of binary sense of right and wrong. Um, I was, I have always been curious, but I think, you know, I, I, I didn't study history. I didn't study social sciences. Like I didn't have the kind of like depth of knowledge that allowed me to connect things that I was experiencing to like a broader context. Um, I didn't think about race when I was growing up. I thought mostly about being Muslim and sometimes about being a woman, but I, but I really did not start thinking about race until probably five or six years ago. And so, you know, that's also quite a big omission. Um, from a lot of those previous pieces like you know a lot of the research that I was um, that I would spend time referencing was you know of research done in Australia mostly on white women and I would relate that to my life without really thinking about you know the fact that it mm. probably wasn't representative of my own experience mm -hmm. um, so yeah I think but I guess the the nice thing about all of that is like in some ways, as we sort of maybe mentioned earlier, my values, like I still cared about similar things. I still cared about, maybe I didn't have the language for it, but I cared about a world that was kind and gracious and full of justice. And I think that is like quite a reassuring thing. Yeah, yeah. Reassuring that your bulb was that those things that you hold dear of still have always been there. Mm. It just yeah. in a different way to them, right? Yeah. <clears throat> sorry. Was, yeah. Um, and oh sorry. No, you're okay. No, go mm -hmm. ahead. I was just 
clear in the throat. <laughs> no, you go, you go, no, no, no. you go, you go, you go. <laughs> was it always a plan to create a book like this, to create all your essays together, or was it? Did someone suggest it? You know, when my first book came out, so Yasmin's story in twenty, I want to say twenty sixteen. Yes, twenty sixteen, early twenty sixteen. I wanted to publish an essay collection straight away after that. Um, I love, I love the essay format. Um, the thing is, it was one of them ones where like nobody replied to my emails about the essay collection until like <laughs> five years later. <laughs> They're like, so you mentioned this thing you wanted to do. I'm like, were you just gently letting me down five years ago? <laughs> like, was that the vibe? Was that actually what was going on? Because like, I guess like, so many of the like great thinkers that I admire and great writers, you know, the Angela Davises and the Roxanne Gays and the James Baldwins and the Audrey Lords and these, you know, a lot of them have essay collections that I think are, for me, have been really powerful. Um, and I kind of, I wanted to be part of that tradition, you know, but, you know, if I had written, if I had written an essay collection in 2016, it would have just been such a different, it wouldn't have had the like, the depth I think that the collection has now it wouldn't have had the richness of thinking I didn't even I don't think I wouldn't have had the craft like the writing craft yet like I don't think I was ready even though I certainly thought I was um so it's nice to kind of be able to to put this out now and to realize it is it is quite exposing to be honest to put a lot of these older essays in there because I'm like oh they are very different to what I would write today. Um, but I think that like, it is part of what I would like to think of as like my body of work. And that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And I think it's really important as well. It's about like, it's everything that we've talked about, right? It's about mm. how we grow as human beings. And I think that's really, I think, you know, you're using the word exposing. I actually think it's liberating to put that mm. out. It's a nice way. It's a nice reframe there. I see what you did. <laughs> see what I did there. <laughs> um, but I do. I think there's something, and it's also you're taking control of it, right? So mm, it's like yeah, it's you 100%. that has the, um, yeah, you have the narrative here, and it is yours, and it's yours to tell because it's yours. And that, yeah, that is actually like number three objective of this collection is certainly, you know, I as your listeners and the, you know, persistent Nazi community may remember from the last chat we had, like I had a particular experience in Australia um, where a lot of people were trying to create their own narrative about who I was. And in the, in the five years since I've left Australia, people have time and time and time again asked me to engage with the Australian media and so on and so, and tell my story in a particular way, but quite often on their terms. And this book for me is, as you say, a real way of like reclaiming the narrative, of doing it on my own terms, of of, of creating, you know, of, of telling, of of getting some agency back and getting some power back and and um and doing it in a way that like I guess I'm quite proud of. Um I was really nervous when I was bringing this book out. I was like, I have no idea how people are going to react. I have no idea if people are going to take it in good faith. Um, but at the end of the day, like 
these are my words. This is the way that I see the world at this particular point in time. This is the journey that I've gone on. And, you know, and, and that's all I can do, but I'm, but I'm pretty happy with that. Yeah. Be happy with it. It's it's yours. Like I absolutely think that you should be. I'm so excited to read it. And I know I hadn't even suggested this to you, but now I'm like, "Mm, could you maybe like pick one of your favorite essays and like read a tiny little bit? Oh yeah. All right. Let's do that. Um, Let me, I'll read. I'll read any part of it that you want. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to. I'm going to read two, I'm going to read two like little sections. Um, one, one is very different. They're quite, quite different, but um, <laughs> I just, this is like, okay, so. Uh, also, I love that from, I just threw this at you. I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay, let's do it. Go, 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 go. This is a very small section from one of the pieces called To All the Cars I've Loved Before. And it's a eulogy to the petrol car. Um, yes. On the 4th of September, 2021, Australia's weekly progressive paper published a piece titled Why Your Current Car May Be the Last Fossil Fuel Vehicle You Own. The era of the electric car is here, author Mike Seckham wrote. I know he is speaking true, and I know the shift away from fossil fuels is vital, necessary humanity-saving. There is no part of me that denies this reality. There is no part of me that fights it. I understand it rationally with every one of my little gray cells. But there is no part of me that isn't heartbroken. My love is old fashioned. My love is seen as dirty, filthy, unimportant, unworthy. My love is ultimately replaceable. What do you do with a love that is no longer viable? Not because either of you has changed, but because the world around you has. I'm a horseshoe maker in the time of Henry Ford, I've often joked. The reality is more, the reality is more that I'm a builder who loves asbestos for all its supple strength, sly resistance to water and electricity, its wondrous sound and heat insulation. It's a shame it is also a hidden killer. What do you do with such love? So that is my uh, my eulogy to the petrol car. Yeah. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you love cars. <laughs> I I love petrol cars. Yes. Um, and and I'm sad as as you can tell from that yeah. short segment about the end of the era, but. I accept it. And um, sadly, (laughs) okay. And this one is (laughs) go on, go on. No, no. I was just going to say, I think so many people will probably get it. There's something, (laughs) you know, like we all know it needs to happen. Absolutely. It needs to happen. Um, But yeah, especially I think, yeah, I get it. I totally get it. I'm now thinking about all my cars and I'm like, oh, because I named my cars. Oh, that's so sweet. What is it? What do you have a name for you? Do you have a current car? I do. It's a hybrid and it's called Greta. Oh, Greta. I love that. Greta is literally the name of, like, we named one of our neighbours' cars and it was called Greta. Mine, my first car was called Alfie. Bless. Mine, my first car was called Ermintrude. Oh! <laughs> yeah. They're all, they're all female love, names. They're all oh, female I names. love. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, but okay. Greta, because it's a hybrid, um, so it was Greta Thunberg. Um, oh, I got very nice. Electric yeah, unit, yeah, 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 but, yeah. Yeah, but soon come, soon come. Yeah. Um, so this is a paragraph from the end of the essay called In Defense of Hobbies. I don't want to jealously guard everything I own, squeezing dollars out of every inch of my life. I want to give things away, share the love. I want to make enough money to not be worried, but not too much that it becomes a source of worry in itself. The woes of owning a castle are truly uninteresting. I want skills that will never find their way onto my LinkedIn profile, but make the best dinner table conversations. I want to relearn the idea of a self decoupled from my value as a piece of human capital. I want to focus on my hobbies as activities that bring joy, not money, to my life in a world that expects me to monetize everything I do. My defense of hobbies is a desire for self-worth outside the neoliberal framework. Indeed, it is a small, quiet, personal revolution. Yay, thank you so much, Yasmin. Thank you. No worries. That gives I mean, people a little taste of, of what they'll they'll find in talking about a revolution. Yes. So for everybody in Australia, you can buy that right now. Exactly. Um, for those in the UK, August. Mm-hmm. And you can you can put a pre-order in now, um, which is always helpful. Or if you would like, you can get it on a digital version. There is also an audiobook. Um that's available. I'm not sure if it's available in the UK, but I recorded the whole thing. So I was about to ask yeah. you for the audio book. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. I did it all. Oh, myself. Well <laughs> there done. Are, there are there are a couple of attempts at accents in there. Um, I don't know if I've pulled them off, but enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. It's all good. Um, you know that you know, normally we ask the question like, what does persistent and nasty mean to you? And I am actually going to ask you again because I want to see if it's different from the last time. Mm, I can't even remember what I said last time. <laughs> I know, so I'm. I'm yeah. <laughs> I just want you just to like say whatever comes into your mind. I think for me, persistent and nasty, um, essentially, just kind of means like not. I often think that nasty implies is something that like people will say when they're trying to make you stay in your place, right? And for me, being persistent and nasty is being like, well, screw where you think I should be um, and screw what, you know, the limits that you placed on me. But um, but I slash we have our eyes on where we want to go and where we want to be. And we are going to, you know, kindly and justly, but persistently and somewhat nastily, work and until you know work and play um and push until we get there I love that I love it yay Yay! oh Yasmin thank you so much for being thanks so much Elaine oh it's so gorgeous it's so lovely to see you um so for everyone obviously you can get Yasmin's other work um as well on all um publishing sites Yes, um, yes, yes, yes. Use your local bookshops as well, please. Yeah, actually, I should say I am selling some of the books directly from my website. So if you go to my website, you can also, um, and they will arrive in the UK and worldwide sooner than August 
just as a little tip. Um, and so is your, is your um, website just yasmineabdelmajid.com? Yeah, I should actually get that. It's yasmineam.com. A.M. for Abdul-Majid, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so yeah. Or if you just Google Yasmin Abdul-Majid's website or Yasmin Australia website, it will come up. <laughs> <laughs> I, will, I will find it and I will put the link in uh, the show Beautiful. notes. Beautiful. So that it's super easy for everybody to find. Super easy. Also, they should be following you on TikTok for your one-minute yeah. reviews. Oh, thank I you. I love it. Thank you. Do you actually? Oh, I my do, God. Actually, thank you so yeah. much. I've I love been like, them. I don't know if anyone watches these, but this is great. I've been really enjoying doing one minute reviews. <laughs> yes, I, I absolutely love them. I'm like, yes, 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 yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for having me back. I'm so happy it's to have stay you back. persistent it's so and nasty. Lovely. Yep, so great. And until next time, lovely listeners, stay nasty. Yes.